If Kim Jong-un were to become incapacitated, then the only viable candidate to rise to the throne, to assume the throne, um, despite her gender, is Kim Il-jong. Hello and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Lauren Zhao and I am joined today by my co-host, Seth Choi. Today we explore Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, and her official role in North Korea. She first made her international debut in 2018 and has continued to dominate North Korean politics alongside her brother, with many scholars considering her to be a potential successor to Kim Jong-un. We are joined today by Dr. Sung Yun Lee to discuss why he considers her to be the most dangerous woman in the world. Dr. Sung Yun Lee is the author of The Sister, North Korea's Kim Yo Jong, The Most Dangerous Woman in the World, as well as an assistant professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and faculty associate at the Program on U.S.-Japan Relations at Harvard University. He focuses on Korean and East Asian studies with a specialty on North Korea. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great. To set up our discussion on Kim Yo-jong and her role in the North Korean government, could you kind of give our listeners an overview of the Mount Pektu bloodline and how it controls leadership in North Korea? Well, North Korea is so different, so out there, so unconventional, so unique. I, I often catch myself saying North Korea is uniquely unique. And I know my grammar teacher in elementary school in London would be wincing and disapproving because, you know, unique is an, is an absolute adjective. But North Korea is really different. And one way that it's truly unique is that it is the system the hierarchy, the government, is a medieval style, absolute monarchy with really no semblance of checks and balances based on a cult of personality and the king, if you will, the supreme leader, going back to the founder, the grandfather of the current supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, that is Kim Il-sung, and then down to his son, Kim Jong-il, the father of Kim Jong-un, and down to the third generational rule under Kim Jong-un since 2011, the supreme leaders, so-called, have been playing the role of God, pretending to be God. They've been executing people, purging, imprisoning people, having them tortured, just on a whim at times. And there have been reports that Kim Yo-jong has been given this authority by her brother and has been calling for executions of officials who, quote, get on her nerves, end quote. Uh, Such reports have surfaced from inside North Korea as of the spring of 2021. So what is the significance of the Mount Pektu bloodline, so-called? Mount Pektu, as many of our listeners know, is a real mountain. It's a majestic mountain that straddles the border between China and North Korea. And in Korean mythology, Mount Pektu is the cradle, the birthplace of the Korean civilization, the Korean people, culture, nation. So um, the North Korean leaders have politically appropriated this mythology that resonates with Koreans both in the North and the South and have weaved this fanciful tale that Kim Il-sung 
as a small-time guerrilla fighter that he was, indeed, fighting against the Japanese in the 1930s, but they've blown this up into Kim Il-sung being a superheroic liberator who virtually single-handedly defeated the Japanese and liberated the entire Korean peninsula in August 1945. And this kind of superhero uh, heroic blood runs through the veins of his son, Kim Jong-il, down to Kim Jong-un today. So the fact that Kim Il-sung, in fact, was a small-time guerrilla fighter against the Japanese colonialists operating in Northeast Asia, uh, the, the North Korean state has taken that fact, small fact, and has magnified this into some kind of a superhero in Kim Il-sung, single-handedly liberating the Korean nation. And since the Korean War of 1950-53, guarding the super family has been guarding, protecting the people of North Korea against, as they say all the time, quote, U.S. hostile policy end quote. So the Mount Pekdu myth is important in the North Korean political system and the need to keep power within the family, within the Kim family dynasty, I would say that supersedes other cultural po political norms and biases like being a male-dominated, very chauvinistic society to which even the idea of a female supreme leader, if necessary, um, in the future is jarring. It's very unnatural. But uh, I contend that for the foreseeable future, let's say over the course of the next 15 years, if Kim Jong-un were to become incapacitated, then the only viable candidate to rise to the throne, to assume the throne, um, despite her gender, is Kim Il-jong. Yeah, and I guess kind of talking more about the unique norms in North Korea. I know there's, you also mentioned in your book, the Songbun system um, that kind of determines hierarchy. I guess, could you talk a little bit about how the system has allowed the Kim family to rise to power and stay in power and how the Kim siblings were able to surpass other people and establish their dominance over other competitors? Yeah, well, North Korea claims to be an egalitarian communist society. But again, it's more like an absolute dynasty rather than a republic. And one of the first things that Kim Il-sung did under Soviet auspices after having been selected by Stalin uh, to emerge as the leader of North Korea in the second half of the 1940s was to wage a class war against aristocrats, against landowners, against Christians and other practitioners of religion, including Buddhists and even the native Korean um, religion, the way of the, the, the heavenly way, Chondogyo. Uh, so <clears throat> we see a systematic prejudice and assault against various groups of people. And in 1957, North Korea codified this very prejudicial, discriminatory uh, policy and came up with over 50, initially 51 different political social groups. And there are largely, there has been, there have been largely three such political groups. At the top, you have the so-called loyal class, loyal to the Kims, of course. 
The middle class is called the wavering class. You know, they're to be watched, surveilled. Maybe they can be trusted, but maybe not. And then at the bottom, you have the so-called hostile class. Every North Korean on birth, upon birth, is thrust into one of these political classes. You don't have a choice in the matter. So who gets to be condemned to the lowest hostile class? A baby, a newborn whose parents, either both or one of them, or even grandparents or even great-grandparents once upon a time practice religion, once upon a time owned some land, once upon a time was a wealthy businessman under the Japanese colonial rule, or you are the descendant of people who immigrated from Japan and resettled in North Korea and so on. So this is a very uh, insidious political system and as we see with power handed down across generations, virtually everything else in North Korea is hereditary. It's passed on from one generation to the next, including biases, discrimination, misery, hunger, deprivation, and so on. How did Kim Jong-un and his sister emerge um, in such a favorable light in terms of the power, almost absolute power that they both enjoy now and that Kim Jong-un has since their father's death in December 2011? Well, by virtue of the dad, Kim Jong-il, choosing Kim Jong-un to be his successor, um, other half-brother and half-sisters were long sidelined, and that speaks to, I guess, the cunningness of Kim Jong-un's mother, who died in 2004, but she was very influential. She is uh, the longest um, beloved uh, consort of Kim Jong-il. That is, Kim Jong-il spent um, the most time, the most number of years with Ko Yong-hee, Kim Jong-un's mom, than any other of his many mistresses. Um, and the mother, Ko Yong-hee, for example, in 2001, um, just to check on Kim Jong-nam, the older half-brother, the youngest son of Kim Jong-il, who we know was murdered brazenly in a crowded international airport with a deadly chemical weapon, VX nerve agent, um, in February 2017. Um, even before then, Kim Jong-un's mom did something naughty. Uh, Kim Jong-nam was arrested, detained, at immigrations in Tokyo in May 2001, he was traveling with his then five or six-year-old son, his wife, and um, domestic help. And he was carrying a fake passport, and the immigration authorities detected this false passport, and they questioned him. And then, perhaps foolishly, he said he's the son of the North Korean great leader. So this caused quite a sensational uh, press coverage. It brought some... Um, shame, I suppose, to the Kim family. But according to various reports, Ko Yong-hee, Kim Jong-un's mother, had alerted um, people in Japan who were pro-North and had told them to give a tip to the Japanese immigration officials in Tokyo. So undermining your rivals, at times taking them out, murdering them, uh, murdering a half-brother, murdering an uncle, murdering a nephew. Uh, North Korean history is rife with these shenanigans. You know, they really operate like medieval 
kings and queens. Thank you, Professor. Could you speak a little bit more about、um, Kim Yo Jong's official role in North Korea and why you consider her to be the most dangerous, quote, most dangerous woman in the world? Sure. Kim Yo Jong was not mentioned by the state media until March 2014, and she was just identified as a deputy director of the propaganda and agitation department. Uh, the word department sort of belies its significance. It's more like a very powerful government ministry.、Uh, Kim Jong Il himself played that role, assumed the role of the deputy director, and then he rose through the ranks、uh, within the Department of Propaganda and Agitation in the 1970s as the heir. And to this day, North Korea has not announced that Kim Il Jong is the sister of the supreme leader, although we all know. That she is. There's a lot of secrecy surrounding the royal family of North Korea. Kim Il Jong has been running this powerful ministry, the Propaganda and Agitation Department, since at least 2012. Although North Korea only admitted it in 2014, and in the spring of 2014, I and many other North Korea watchers、uh, detected a shift. In the tone,、uh, the, the degree of nastiness, vile invective that North Korea often spews out against their adversaries, President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s was referred to as "quote human scum." The former South Korean president Moon Jae-in has been called all kinds of unkind names, including "scared dog," "first-class idiot," "parrot raised in America," and so on. But Despite such a distinguished history of vileness, in 2014, North Korea's invective became more personal, more、um, nasty, racist, homophobic, and very sexist. For example, North Korea called President Barack Obama "quote a wicked black monkey that should return to his natural habitat in Africa." And feed off the breadcrumbs thrown at him by tourists. End quote. North Korea called President Park Geun-hye a woman, the first ever elected female leader in a democracy in Asia.、Uh, referred to her repeatedly as quote dirty old whore in one especially nasty、uh, invective in May 2015. North Korea referred to President Park as. Quote, "Stinky Obama pelvis licking, skirt lifting, dirty old whore." End quote. And also in April 2014, North Korea referred to Judge Michael Kirby, a renowned、um, judge from Australia, who was the main writer, drafter, author of a monumental UN report on human rights in North Korea, the Commission of Inquiry report on human rights in North Korea, published in February 2014. It's over 300 pages long.、Um, North Korea referred to Judge Kirby, who is openly gay, as "quote a disgusting, dirty old." Lecture with a forty-year career in homosexuality. End quote. At the time, I did not understand why this sudden shift、uh, to like personalized nastiness.、Um, but then, once I, over the past few years,、um, examined 
the over 40 personal, uh, pardon me, uh, official statements, written statements under Kim Yo-jong, her own name that she's published, uh, I reached the conclusion that all those nasty statements from 2014 and 2015 had her signature snark all over them. I'm not saying Kim Yo-jong wrote, authored all of those statements by herself. North Korea employs the best authors, writers from literature programs out of their university to hire these government propagandists, but they have the seal, they have uh, the signature um, print, imprint of Kim Yo-jong. And I say this because, you know, in those 40 statements, almost every single one of them features, they, they all feature her nasty, um, snarky, personalized insult, whether it's against President Moon or the current South Korean president, President Yoon Song yeol or President Biden, or even Donald Trump, with whom the siblings had a good relationship, more or less, and um, also other U.S. officials like uh, the former National Security Advisor, John Bolton. Kim Yo-jong, in a July 10, 2020 statement, uh, referred to Mr. Bolton as, quote, human scum. So uh, Kim Yo-jong has become very potty-mouthed and very belligerent, and she has issued several written statements saying that she will deploy her nation's nuclear forces and preemptively nuke South Korea if South Korea even shot a single bullet inside North Korean territory, then she will bring about something akin to, quote, total destruction and ruin. We have never seen a preeminent female figure in history, that is, we have never seen a young woman or an old woman or, you know, a woman who has really um, the full control of the government with the power vested in her by her brother issue threats of preemptive nuclear strike against the peaceful neighbor. And she has been saying so that she has her finger also on the nuclear button. And uh, whether she's bluffing or not uh, remains to be seen. But again, there are no real checks and balances. And for this young woman to be issuing such nuclear threats against South Korea is um, concerning. And that's why I call her the most dangerous woman in the world, and that she should not be underestimated. Yeah, you kind of mentioned um, that her role, her status, I guess, as a young woman, and um, the her sort of, uh, I guess, actions in this in North Korea's traditionally patriarchal society. Could you kind of further further discuss these tensions and maybe how they've affected her rise to power? And do you see like those tensions sort of affecting her current position in politics? Well, again, the emergence of a preeminent, powerful female personage within the Mount Pekdu dynasty, so-called, is unprecedented. Now, of course, the wives of the former supreme leaders uh, were very powerful, influential. Everyone knew uh, that they had to be deferential um, to them, the first lady. But we have not seen a female person of the royal family take on such a public and official role, uh, not only at Kim Jong-un summit meetings, but also, you know, issuing threats, nuclear threats, issuing policy uh, statements under her own name, again, you know, dozens of times since the onset of COVID in 20, 
2020. And I really think it's not a coincidence that uh, Kim Jong-un started to rapidly elevate his sister publicly uh, when COVID struck because Kim Jong-un um, has never really faced an existential threat. They play up this paranoia of the United States um, starting a war, about to start, you know, just itching to start a war with North Korea. It's simply not true. The U.S. has never fired first or even fired back, really, even when North Korea killed lots of Americans and more South Koreans throughout the Cold War. But COVID, we know, can kill princes and paupers alike. Of course, people with wealth, power, access to uh, you know, better health care and so on uh, fare better than the marginalized, politically and economically um, marginalized people. But you never know. And he's not in good health. Kim Jong-un is not in great health. So I think um, it was sort of like taking a life insurance out on his family, his wife, himself, his children, by rapidly elevating his sister, just in case uh, he became incapacitated. Kim Jong-un has been in power for over 10 years. Um, there seems to be no visible sign of Kim Jong-un um, abdicating the throne or introducing reform and um, opening worthy of the name. And having his sister by his side gives him tremendous advantage, I would say, because, yes, she is an attractive young woman. And it's much easier to stomach insults from a photogenic woman than from the more surly looking brother. And it's much more, it's much easier to forgive her when Kim Yo-jong becomes the charming face of her nation, when North Korea goes back to a post-peace, a post-provocation peace ploy. We've seen North Koreans come out, you know, the siblings, back in 2018, and they were able to hold a series of summit meetings with the leaders of China, South Korea, the United States, and Putin too the next year. So uh, when that moment happens, and it will, North Korea doesn't just go berserk and continues to escalate endlessly. They know how to do a charm offensive as well. I foresee Kim Yo-jong as the pretty face of the next charm offensive. And I argue that this is um, a trap. It's a dangerous ploy because many men around the world are um, prone to patronizing young women. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, sexism, chauvinism latent in many of us, in some women too, I would suggest. And um, I fear that leaders in various capitals, when Kim Yo-jong comes out, will think that she is, by virtue of her gender, a young woman, more malleable, that they can control her, contain her, even teach her, something like that. And I think that is um, quite a dangerous assumption. Kim Jong-il, the father, told his sushi chef, Japanese chef of many years, that Kim Yo-jong is would be his favorite choice to succeed him if only she were a boy. So her skills, political acumen, talent, intelligence, and uh, desire to be noticed, to be the center of attention, all these signs were in place even when she was a little girl. So I think it's safe to assume she's ambitious.
uh, talking about international uh, attention, you, um, in your book, you discuss her first international appearance and visit to South Korea during the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Um, could you maybe speak a little about, about um, what this unveil- unveiling meant for her and her position uh, by Kim's side? Yes. So again, North Korea knows how to do a charm offensive. They not only just provoke, but then they try to placate, pacify, and they call for peace talks and all those good things. So after two years of relentless provocations, missile tests, nuclear tests throughout 2016 and 2017, on January 1st, 2018, Kim Jong-un in his annual New Year's address said that he would be amenable to thinking about sending a delegation to South Korea for the Winter Olympics, and the opening ceremony was to be on February 9th, so just a little over a month away. And this caused great excitement around the world, especially in South Korea, and talks between the North and South began a few days later. And another thing that North Korea excels in is drama, political drama. I actually fully expected it, but North Korea announced on February 8th, on the eve of the delegation's visit for the opening ceremony on the 9th, that none other than Kim Jong-un's own sister would be on the delegation. So that even, you know, jazzed up expectations and the opening ceremony to have the princess from Pyongyang a person of the Mount Pekdu bloodline, for Kim Jong-un to send his dear little sister to South Korea must mean that he really means it. He really means denuclearization, reconciliation, peaceful unification, and so on. Such was the expectation, unrealistic fancy, of many people in South Korea. She rode on her brother's plane, flew over from Pyongyang, And once the plane touched down, I watched this on um, live cable news TV, South Korean news channels. Uh, There was great anticipation, people trying to catch the first glimpse of this mysterious figure, Kim Yo-jong. And when she walked into the VIP lounge at Incheon International Airport, she carried herself, you know, with erect posture, Um, her gaze, her eyes, Uh, were fixed on maybe two or three points across the room on the wall. She did not exude any bit of not one iota of nervousness or excitement, like so happy to be here kind of vibe. None of that. She acted as if she were in charge, that she was entering her own office, actually. So, you know, this kind of ability to project confidence, that doesn't just happen. It comes from years of royal training and exuding arrogance and confidence is part of who she is. Um, So at the opening ceremony, the optics, the seating arrangements I found very odd. She and Kim Young-nam, her co-lead delegate, 90 years old, they were seated above and behind President Moon of South Korea, the host of the nation. They were seated above Vice President Mike Pence and his uh, wife. And depending on certain angles, sometimes it appeared as if Kim Yo-jong was right above Mike Pence. And she, you know, carried that arrogant smirk smile, Mona Lisa smirk smile, as I say, throughout uh, the evening. 
also projecting uh, this kind of arrogance, knowing that she is the star of the show. And um, I guess our listeners will have to read my book, but I ascertained that it was not by chance, this uh, strange seating arrangement. And the next day, she visited President Moon in his office in the Blue House. And again, she was courteous, but uh, she also sat across the table from President Moon and at times looked bored, um, having her chin up, her gaze down, and her head tilted slightly. Um, you know, it, by Confucian norms, one might say she exuded rudeness even, but such is uh, the, the, the entitlement and the power and privilege that one is used to when you are the princess in North Korea. So we've kind of talked about how she's becoming this more confident and powerful figure in the public sphere. And I was just wondering, how has her relationship with Kim Jong-un changed over the years? And has Kim Jong-un ever seen her as a threat or has the relationship always been close? Well, I've watched literally hundreds of hours of North Korean footage, video clips, and what I've observed in many of them is that the two siblings really like each other. They really trust each other. You know, on their 70-hour, 69-hour train ride to Vietnam for the second summit meeting with Donald Trump, in February 2019, ashtray with both hands. And some observers said, you know, she's subservient. You know, she just brings out his pen, Mont Blanc pen, for him to sign guest books and joint statements with Donald Trump and so on. Um, I see more a real, not motherly, I suppose, but, you know, in the same vein, sort of a real family affection um, instead of uh, a, a doting sister rather than somebody who is servile or subservient. So, uh, for example, at the April 27th, 2018, inter-Korean summit at Panmunjom, the border village with President Moon, uh, I see Kim Jong-un and Kim Il-jong, you know, it's like looking at each other for a split second and then smiling as if to communicate, wow, isn't this day just going swimmingly? So I see a lot of, you know, genuine rapport and affection for each other. Will this kind of brotherly, sisterly affection and trust last forever? Well, nobody knows for sure, but we know that Kim Jong-un's children are quite young. Kim Jong-un has been parading around his very cute-looking daughter since November of 2022, and sometimes, you know, the daughter cups her father's cheeks in her hands at a military parade in February 2023. This happened. Uh, they clearly show genuine love and affection, the father and the daughter, for each other. And some North Korea observers have reached the conclusion, therefore, that she, the young daughter, is the heir apparent. I think it's too soon to tell. I mean, you know, she's clearly prepubescent. She's a girl. Some think she's 10, maybe 12 at most. What can a 12-year-old child do? Like receive a foreign delegation? You know, lead her nation's delegation abroad to South Korea or to the US? Or give a major public speech, even for the very weird regime that is North Korea? I think that's a bit too much. So until one of the children reaches adulthood, 
it will take another 10, 15 years. Again, I see no one else other than Kim Yo-jong as a viable candidate to the throne. We know Kim Yo-jong is very capable. You know, we know she's very smart. And uh, Americans who've interacted with both Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong, uh, Steve Began, for example, the Honorable Steve Began, who was number two in the State Department during the Trump administration under Secretary Mike Pompeo, and who also was the U.S. Special Representative for North Korea policy, Mr. Began told me that when he, Mike Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo, and um, another uh, ethnic Korean CIA uh, analyst sat with Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong for three hours in Pyongyang, uh, this is in October 2018, the Americans would crack jokes among themselves, you know, uh, while taking a break, and Kim Yo-jong would laugh along. Clearly, she understood English, while Kim Jong-un just sat there expressionless, stoically, because he doesn't understand English. And another American, a former chief aide to President Bill Clinton, Douglas Band, who accompanied the former president to Pyongyang, in August 2009 to win the release of two U.S. detainees since March that year. Um, he touched down, the plane touched down in Pyongyang, and Kim Yo-jong, all of 21, almost 22 at the time, so quite young, she was waiting for the Americans on the hot you know, tarmac out, outdoors, and she came straight to Mr. Band, completely ignoring Bill Clinton, who's the far more famous celebrity, you know, and she was all business. She said, I want the letter now. And uh, she was a bit aggressive, but spoke perfect English, I was told. So uh, we know that she's very capable and uh, I don't see any other person, any other direct line descendant of Kim Il-sung other than Kim Il-jong uh, as a number two deputy for now. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. That was so informative. And I'm looking forward to seeing if maybe your prediction will be true in the future. Well, we'll see. But thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social Thank media you. at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.